I've said we, we started last week on a series called Colossians, Jesus plus nothing. So it's obviously quite clear we're doing a, a, a journey, a study through the book or the letter of Colossians. And we encourage all of you to read with us as we go through the series. Just a quick recap, last week as we started, I, I gave just a little bit of background to why the letter exists. Um, there was a man called Epaphras, gentleman that um, got saved under the ministry of, of Paul. Paul was preaching in a city called Ephesus. Epaphras got saved during that time in Ephesus. And Epaphras was not from that city, he was from a place called Colossae. So when he returned back to his hometown, he, he preached what he had received. And people got saved. And before you knew, um, a, a church was established. And as this church got going, things got um, great, and people started getting together. Unfortunately, it seemed that in the city of Colossae, there were a lot of people that came through. It's like a city on a trade route. And with that, various influences and various philosophies came into the life of the church that concerned Epaphras. And Epaphras being aware of a man called Paul that had a huge influence and, 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 and great gift, uh, went across to, to see Paul. Paul had by then been imprisoned in a city called Rome. And um, as Paul was imprisoned there, it seemed like he was in house arrest. Epaphras arrives and, and talks to him and, and just conveys a message that, listen, we are in a bit of a, a spot of bother in, in Colossae. Um, there are certain things that just not going so well. And so Paul then, in response to what he hears from Epaphras, writes this letter, and he addresses it to the church in Colossae, and addressing some of these issues that have come up. The main thing that we want to establish as we go through this letter is that Jesus plus nothing is how we ought to live our lives. When we approach God, there's nothing that you and I can bring to try to impress Him with and, and try to gain His favor. It is only through Christ. And Paul brings that through so clearly as we will see in the weeks to come. And so I have three questions that I would like just to throw out this morning as we, as we kind of wrap up our introduction to this letter. And it's just simply the, the question, what? It's the question, how? And it's the question, why? So we're going to talk about what, how, and why. And, and the first what is relating to what was the problem that Epaphras came to Paul with. And so we're going to look at a few things there. I, I know that in our journey through this letter, we will be able to touch more in detail on these things. But I kind of just want to introduce them to you. And last week we started with what the problem was, and, and that's kind of like where we ended. Um, our time ran out. So first of all, what was the problem? And I'm going to just uh, give you what seemingly had gone wrong in a context that required of Paul to write a letter. Paul felt that it justified him spending time putting down words to write to these believers because there was a real problem. And so we're going to find a couple of references to these problems. And the first one we touched on last week, Colossians 2 verse 4, and Paul says the following, I say this, whatever he was saying at that time, um, previously, he says, I say this, Colossians 2 verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you or deceive you with plausible arguments. And so he uses the word plausible or credible arguments, and he realized that they were kind of smooth talkers amongst them. 
that came with certain arguments that opposed the true gospel. And he warns them, he says, guys, beware of the fact that there are people that they, they may come innocently, but they actually want you to believe something contrary to what the truth of the gospel is all about. And so what that actually says to us today is, guys, watch out for smooth talkers that come across very innocently possibly. And I'm not talking about individuals out there at your workplace necessarily. I'm talking about philosophies and ideas that will contradict Jesus plus nothing. And so we need to discern and identify and not be anxious about these smooth talkers at all. And I'm talking about people that could be amongst us, people that could be on the internet, people that could be on television, people that could write books that are smooth talkers that could delude us, take us away from the pure gospel. So he warns us about that. In Colossians 2 verse 8, he carries on. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. How's that? Not just now smooth talkers that could delude you, but he says, watch out that you may be taken captive. And it kind of the idea that you have of that word there, captive, is when a something has, has, has caught its prey, when an animal, for instance, a predator has caught a prey and, and, and takes it away from its wherever it was caught into its confines and it's to, in it, into its habitat. It's, that thing is, is captive. It's been caught. And Paul gives us the same idea. He says, listen, there's some of these things that people will say that so captivates our minds and we aren't kind of impressed by what we hear, but actually what it's doing, it's, it's putting us in a form of bondage. We're not free. So watch out against it. And so it carries on. It says, Take you captive by what? By philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition. According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So again, there's this one side that says these things could possibly take you captive because it's not considering the truth of Christ. These two opposites. And I think it's too easy sometimes these days for for things just to be thrown out there and people just to believe it. I mean, the internet said it, so it must be true. <laughs> it's like the, the, you know, the internet has this incredible authority these days. Where did you hear about that? No, I saw it on the internet. Or somebody wrote it on Facebook or whatever. It's like, oh, because it was written and said, then it's the truth? Our main reference should always be this truth. So even 2,000 years ago, where they had no internet and no television, these things were around. And people had to be warned about them. Not to put you into fear, but the reality is this. That we have to hold on to the truth of God's Word. And unless we know it, we could become prey to smooth talkers and philosophies and ideas. And so Paul is clearly warning us, and, and as you find this, what he says in chapter 2 already, he's kind of like he's building us up to the place where he really wanted to warn the church about certain philosophies that were, that were taught, that in essence were hollow. How do we know whether that's hollow? We compare it to the truth. And if we don't know the truth, we have nothing to compare it to. And so we won't even know whether it's hollow. 
So we have to have a standard. And that's why it is important for us. See, I like the t-shirts there, hey? Gee, matching t-shirts this morning. Anyway, um, now you're going to all wait. Who's wearing some of the t-shirts? Like, yeah, now you're going to all look around. I'm not going to ask them to stand. I just like the t-shirts. Anyway, um, the thing is this. As a, as a believer, it is your and my responsibility to fill our minds with the truth that we have some sort of a standard. That when anything hollow could come, we could discern that it's hollow. That it has the potential to deceive us away from the truth. But if there's no truth in us, we will be led astray and could be led astray by hollow, empty, deceitful thoughts and teachings. So Paul says, guys, listen to what he says in verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, well, let's stop that and just pause. Then he says in verse 8, See to it that you do not be taken captive. So he says, as you received Christ, see to it with that in place that you aren't taken captive. So we cannot have any resistance to deceit unless we have been born again. The, the, the portion of received Christ, by the way, just a very simple thing here. We don't necessarily give our lives to Christ. We receive Christ into our lives. Paul says that. This thing of, and I know that it's not necessarily wrong to say that, well, I've given my life to Christ. Actually, what I would theologically need to understand is that I've received this gift of Christ into my life. Because I don't have anything to give. It's He that gives. The Father gave us the gift of eternal life, His Son, Jesus Christ. We receive Him into our lives. And as you receive Him, it enables you, according to what Paul says here, that you therefore see to it with this in place. Having received Christ, being born again, established faith in Him. Therefore you can stand and can be able to discern empty philosophies and, and hollow stuff and, and all sorts of things that will come to try to lure you away from the truth because it was happening, people. That's why the letter exists. This is not just something that Paul thought about out of nowhere. Huh, let me just write something. I don't have anything to do. I'm kind of bored here in prison. Let me just write the letter. No, there was substantial evidence that people were being led astray. So Paul, in response to that, and led by the Spirit of God, writes this letter. I dare to say that this is still very relevant for us today. That these realities that the people were facing is still around us today because Paul says these philosophies are being brought into our lives according to human tradition some of the traditions that they had were opposing the truth and it's being brought about here he says according to the elemental spirits of the world and so here we need to understand that Paul is going even a little bit deeper than just the simple way of we in which humans were thinking. You're saying, listen, there's some, there's some elementals, some, some evil spirits that are going around trying to deceive you from the truth. Paul talks about it in 1 Timothy 4. He says, in the last days, there will be, listen to this word, doctrines of demons going around. It's like, woo, that's encouraging. That in these last days, 
there will be attempts made to deceive us from the truth. And don't go around looking for a demon behind every bush now and be afraid. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying we've got to hold on to the truth because there's an attempt from even elemental spirits to try to deceive us from believing the truth. And actually, they're teaching these elemental principles that, you know what, life is all about you and me. That, you know what, you exist for your own happiness. You have the right to pursue your own joy in life. And, I mean, it sounds very innocent and simple, but that's often what happens that deceives us away from Jesus plus nothing. That we look for our own joy and our own fulfillment here on earth. We can only find that Jesus is not against fulfillment. He actually talks about it here through Paul, that we find fulfillment in Him, not in ourselves, not in what we have, not in what we do, not in who we are, but in who He is. Again, Jesus plus nothing. We read further on in Colossians 2 verse 16 to 18 as Paul just expounds on what was the problem? What were the issues that they were facing? He addresses it. He says, therefore, again after he had addressed something about Christ, he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink. Praise the Lord. <laughs> so don't judge me if I don't drink coffee. Uh -huh. If I, let's not go the vegetable route because that could be 10 kind sensitive one. But anyway, I love satsa, by the way, but not too much of it. But don't let anyone, Paul says, jud pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or to a new moon or a Sabbath. So in here, Paul is clearly saying to us that there are human standards that are offered for godly living. He's saying that there are people that go around and say, listen, we're going to judge you upon the standards that we have created. And if you don't comply with them, you don't qualify. He says, watch out. These, he says in verse 17 of chapter 2, these are a shadow of the things to come. A shadow. We know that there's nothing in a shadow. Isn't it? You can't, hey, let's grab the shadow. We, I remember having cats around. You know, you try to, you had this one cat that you, 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 do something with an, an item and there's a shadow on the floor or whatever and the cat runs after the shadow and never can catch the shadow because the shadow is always just, you know, disappearing or moving away. And it's the same in a sense with these things. That these teachings and these philosophies that come, Paul says they have no substance really because he uses that word. He says, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's not found in the shadows. So, We've got to make sure, people, this morning, the things that you believe and that I believe, are they shadows or are they full of substance? If they do not come from the Word of God, I dare to say that they're just shadows. They're empty things. They can bring no fulfillment. But the substance, he says, is found in Christ. He says, let no one disqualify you. And isn't it true that we can so easily disqualify people on the basis of what we see, what we hear, what we observe? And he uses this word, he says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. 
It's like asceticism. What is that? And that's a, it's a severe form of self-denial. Where I say, I will deny myself of X, Y, Z. In order for me to be able to qualify before God. And there's some sad stories. I, we once went to Sri Lanka. And um, in, the, in the Hindu belief, yeah, it was a Hindu belief. It wasn't Buddhist. No, it was, it, it was Hinduism. Yeah. One of the things that they, that they taught in that context, a friend of mine actually took a picture of this, where a man had committed something that he needed some form of forgiveness from, and in the faith that he was involved in Hinduism, he had to, um, he had to walk and fall down on his face and lie there and get up and take a step and fall down. He had to do this for something like 60 to 100 kilometers to be able to find some form of forgiveness and, and, and uh, just being cleared of his sin. And so that's a severe form of self-denial. And I mean, some of the things that people have gone through, they, I remember one was they were tying people, hooking them with nails into their bodies and, and, and they were walking pulling something behind them. It's, it's extreme. Trying to have some form of penitence found and forgiveness found for what they had gone, done wrong. Now that's extreme. That's bodily stuff. But we can even do that. And, and perhaps even start trusting in, hey, I was in church on Sunday. That counts, eh, Jesus? Well, I, I, I did read... And, and we always will encourage people to read. But if it's part of a severe form of self-denial of <gasps> using that to gain favor, it's hollow. There's no substance. So Paul encourages us, guys, take aware of these things. Become aware of it. And he says further on, and the worship of angels, uh, going on in detail about vision, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast. He says if you don't hold on to Christ, and you try to find some form of, of, of salvation through what, your efforts, it has no substance. Some examples, if I, if I may just submit them to you, I'm just suggesting these are some of the things that, that can go wrong in our lives because of wrong doctrines that, that we listen to, that we, that, we, that we read about and that we watch and, and that we are aware of in our world today. These are just some of the things that can affect us and can often cause that hollowness in our lives because it has the potential to deceive us from the truth. Some of the things are, for instance, an over-sense, over-emphasis on prosperity. An over-emphasis on prosperity. When, when we believe that God wants to be rich and anything short of that is sin and not His will. We start diverting away from the gospel. And God wants to bless us. We appreciate His grace towards us. But when we all start believing that each one of us have this right to be rich and the fullness of, of the world should come our way and, and all the riches are there for me and I can claim it and, and God kind of like owes me to, to bless me with wealth, then the world starts revolving around me. And it becomes me-centered. And an overemphasis on prosperity can delude us. 
Another thing that can go wrong is if we, when we even read Scripture and we don't understand the full truth, an exaggerated view of good works and legalism can step in, can creep into our lives. An exaggerated view of good works and legalism. It's when we start believing that salvation comes through works. And it is so subtle. It is so subtle that my efforts prove me right before God. That I depend on what I could do and have done. And that brings me favor from God. Not at all. Another thing could be the exaggerated view of grace. Where we say everything is permissible. Well, it's the grace of God. I can do whatever I want to do. And we talk about that these days as in, in term it almost in this way, we talk about it as being hyper grace. Where we, we believe that, hey, God forgives. So <laughs> it's kind of like when I go off the wall and off track, then God's grace is there. It's like I'll just depend on Him for forgiving me again. But there's no pursuit of holiness. Or very little, because grace is there. And hyper-grace can become very dangerous. And it kind of can just justify every action that I want to do, because, hey, he's going to be there for me. And the other thing that, that we need to be aware of is that in this world that we're living in, there's a belief of universalism, an interfaith dialogue, where we appreciate other faiths because there's this ultimate belief that all roads lead to heaven. So we should incorporate just this, this universal faith that, hey, we all want to be good, and, and, and everybody kind of, you know, believes that, all faiths believe that there's goodness in man, and so this goodness will all read to the same place. And that, come on, how can it be true that only your faith as Christian faith leads to heaven? Surely, look at us. We're trying to do good too. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one way to God the Father. And we've got to understand that. Because in this world, it comes with hollow philosophies to try to delude the faith that we ought to have. There's a thing called New Age spirituality where people say whatever feels good is good. If it feels good, it's fine. Just whatever you feel in your heart. If you feel good about it, then it's fine. Then you accept it. It's like well, how many of the things that Jesus said to his disciples and to the people around him during his three-year uh, stint of ministry weren't good, weren't great. It was like, oh, that's tough. So I've got to let go of all that I want and hold on to you? No, we live in a world, in, in this humanistic world, where people say, well, hey, if you feel good about it, that's all right. Because nobody can, can rob you of the, the pursuit that you have towards your own joy and your own happiness. Big word called hedonism. That it's about, hey, I just want to have fun in life. I just want to enjoy life. And so, whatever I can do to have fun with, that's acceptable. Hollow philosophies, empty deceit. The last one that I just want to mention is, and it's becoming more and more an issue. And I don't want to spend too much time on these things because we want to see how this is addressed. But there's, there's this world that we're living in where personal sexual preferences are, are celebrated. So whatever your personal sexual preference is, 
That's okay. God has space for that. You can express yourself sexually in the way that you want to. Because after all, you get to have your own fun. And fulfillment is found in what you can do. Not in what God has for us. In the truth. Jesus plus nothing brings true fulfillment. What does sexual preferences look like? It's a freedom to express myself sexually the way I want to. More than one partner. Partners of different genders. Being sexually active before marriage. <laughs> we live in a world where this is a real fight for people. It's like, I can do whatever I want to do. I want to say to you that there's a fight that we need to have as a people of God. If you're unmarried and you've never been married, I'd encourage you to fight for your virginity. Don't give that up. Because some one guy comes or a girl comes and persuades you otherwise. If you've never been married, fight for your virginity. It's something precious. And if you are married and perhaps have been married and things have gone wrong, fight for purity. Fight for purity within your marriage. Such a beautiful thing that we can offer one another. God wants us to sexually express ourselves, but there are clear parameters for that. And when we listen to all these empty deceits and philosophies and human traditions and stuff out there in the world, it persuades us to let go of these things that we ought to fight for. We need to, as a church, encourage one another, not condemn, because if things have gone wrong for you as a, as a single person or as a married person, there's the grace of God that comes in as you cry out and say, Jesus, please forgive me, because I have gone off the wall with this thing. Because we live in a world where it's laden with potholes. We know about potholes. But in a spirit world where we have wanting to stay pure and protect our virginity and we are married and we want to keep the purity within the confounds of marriage, there are these potholes and obstructions that are trying to lure us away from that. And as people of God, we are encouraged to stay focused on Him. The teachings in the spirit of this age are out to defeat you, particularly in this area. But God's Spirit comes to bring us victory and breakthrough. He wants you free and He wants you to live as an overcomer. For the unmarried this morning, and for those of you that have never been married, I want to ask you, why not live for something to give your future spouse that is incredibly valuable? And it's not a ring, it's not a house, it's not a car. The most precious thing that you can give is your virginity. Fight for that. And if somehow it has been tainted already, come to Jesus and ask Him for forgiveness because He restores. He can even restore virginity. His grace does that. But ask for it and then fight for it and keep it pure. Because you can easily give away an expensive gift. But it is more difficult to give away something as valuable as your virginity and your purity before God and your current or future spouse. If things have gone wrong, don't be condemned. Just get up, receive forgiveness, and fight. I believe God wants us to fight for what He has for us. And in this area particularly, fight for what you believe He has for you. Now, the first question was, what, was, what went wrong? And this is some of the stuff that went wrong. How he addresses it, 
how he helps us to, to overcome this problem. How did Paul address the problem? Just three portions of scripture that we need to quickly just look at. And, and it's Colossians 1. Colossians 1, it, it, it so clearly talk about, talks about this thing that the, the reality of what we find in Christ that will enable us to overcome. And it's not a formula, it's a relationship. He says here in Colossians 1 verse 13 to 20, I'll read it to you. He says, He has delivered us. Listen to the key words as I read it to you. Colossians 1 verse 13. He has, who is, who is He? It's Jesus. So He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So we don't have to be prey and succumb to these, to these empty te teachings and values and principles. He says, He has delivered us from these things, transferred us into the kingdom, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Because in verse 15 he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. I love that verse. It says, all things were created through Him, by Him, and for Him. You and I were created by Him, through Him, and for Him. We exist for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything He might be preeminent. So it talks about the prominence, the preeminence of Christ in our lives. That He ought to be the one who is the leading one. And if He is the one that leads us and guides us, then we will not fall prey to these empty teachings and other doctrines. It says in verse 19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Him all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Just so beautiful to see that we actually find fullness in Him. So in a world where we are prone to be deceived, we pursue Christ because He is our fullness. How do we pursue Christ? In a personal, living relationship with Him. Not through religious formula and activity. It's a personal pursuit that you and I have with Him, of Him. And then in relationship with others where we are encouraged to do the same. Colossians 2, another portion that helps us to understand how do we overcome, how do we address these issues that are around us? What is the way forward? He says in Colossians 2 verse 9, Paul writes to the church, in the midst of all these issues that he's discussing with them, he says, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God. Just a note, you're on baptism again. It's like just such a clear picture of what baptism is all about. It enables us to understand that I've died to myself, but I've been raised with Him. Verse 11 says, no, rather verse, um, verse 13, he says, And you 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. Paul is simply just saying, guys, there are problems in the church. There are issues that you're facing. But this is how you address the issues. By believing who is in you. By understanding who Christ is. Guess what he doesn't do? He doesn't give them a formula. Hey guys, when you get together every Saturday, do these five things. And then you will be able to stand against the wiles of the enemy. No, he simply just reminds them that as believers, this is who you are. You don't have to do anything. You've got to believe. You can understand who. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's not more that you can do that will enable you to be an overcomer. It's what he has already done. Because he says this. He canceled the record of debt in, in verse 14. The debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen to verse 15. Love it. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. These elemental spirits that sometimes people get flustered by and afraid of. He says, hey, <laughs> Jesus has disarmed them and put them to open shame. They thought that they put Jesus to open shame by putting him on a cross. Everybody laughed at Christ. But the one who finally had victory was Christ. He had put them to, put, put, he had put them to shame by triumphing over them in him. Love the fact that this is how we address these issues. Finally, I believe Paul answers the why. The why does Paul try to help us overcome these things? Why? There's a problem. He doesn't ignore it. He says, guys, this is the how, believing in Christ. But here he comes with a why. And let me share with you just, again, taking from the whole letter. First of all, Colossians 1, verse 9. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. I love the fact that Paul prays for them. and doesn't just write to them. He prays for them. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Listen to verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul realized there's a problem. He says, this is how we do it. But the reason why is so that we can be fully established in Him and please Him with the way we live. And not so that people can be impressed by with us, but that we can be, what He says here, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He carries on in verse 28, in, verse, in chapter 1 still. He says, Him we proclaim, Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? Why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul says, there are problems. The how is, it's Christ. Why do we need Christ? So that we can present people mature in Him. People can grow and not be tossed to and fro. And in morning, evening, morning and talk and evening talk are different because in the morning I feel good because I kind of woke up and, you know, read a great verse and in the evening I'm down again. 
because I went through the day. No, Christ is in you. He has overcome. He has canceled all sins. He is the king. And he writes to inform us, this is why I want you to know who he is. Colossians 2 verse 5 to 6, Paul says, For though I'm absent in body, because Paul never had been to Colossae, but Paul writes to them because he cares about them. He says, Yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see what? Your good order and the firmness of your faith, Paul says. Guys, I want you to understand who lives in you so that you can stand firm in your faith and be in good order. A good order there is kind of like related to a military discipline of, I'm in good order. I'm ready. I'm, I'm attentive. I'm disciplined. I'm not overcome by these empty words and empty deceits. Paul carries on. Two more portions and then we're done from Colossians. And I close my Bible. Here I am again. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, If you have been raised, if you have, Again, if you've received Christ, and if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. The things that are on the earth are these philosophies, these human traditions, these demands on you. He says, don't think about these things. He says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's how we ought to live. He says, only if you have Christ in your life, and that is your focus, then this will begin the firmness in you. And finally, in Colossians 4 verse 12, he encourages them about Epaphras, the guy who seemingly had planted the church. He says, Epaphras, he writes about him, he says, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. For what reason? What is the why? that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. I just want to say to you, we live in a world that's fallen. We live in a world that has issues and problems and stuff that will so easily perhaps come and deceive us. But we have, that's what Paul says, look at Christ, who He is, what Christ has accomplished for us. Why do we look at Christ? So that we may be fully established and what he writes here, that we may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And not one day I want to serve him and next day I'm overwhelmed by this stuff and all these other ideas and patterns of thinking. They're out there trying to deceive us. And we're not alarmed by them. We are focused on Christ. Because that focus enables us to stay away. From I always say that the, the greatest defense against evil is my, my love for Christ. It's not fighting evil. We're not called to fight evil. We are called to serve God and to love Christ. And so when I love Him, I'm opposing evil. And yes, I'm fighting against it. But my greatest defense... Or offense against the enemy is my pursuit of Jesus. I say, I love you. I'll serve you. I want to know who I am in you. I establish myself upon the truth found in Scripture. And that is how I live my life. 
And by the way, as I face you, my back is towards the enemy because I love you, Christ, and I follow you. And when other ideas come and the doctrines and philosophies, uh-uh, no, not, because Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. And so I want to close this morning and just pray together with you that our journey through Colossians, this is just simply an introduction. There's so much more that we can dive in. I think one of the greatest discoveries that we will probably make as we go through the book or the letter of Colossians is to see more of Christ. Is to see more of Him. And that is what we want you to come and experience with us. And, and I, I do want to encourage you to read through the letter at your own time. It's only four chapters. It's not long. It takes you a couple of minutes to actually read through it. But we don't want to just read it and say we've read it. We want to read it and understand it and start applying it to our lives. So from next week, we're going to start really at chapter 1 and do our journey through it. So the next, these two weeks that we've been through already is just an introduction. And you can see the wealth that we actually need to start unpacking. And we want to encourage you, come and participate. We're going to take this into the life groups as well and, and, and work it through there and see how more of this can take fruit in our own lives so that we may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Amen. Father, I thank you this morning for just this brilliant um, letter that you've given us. Because we believe all scripture is inspired and breathed upon by God for, for our nourishment, for our correction, for our um, guidance, Lord. And this morning, Lord, I thank you that you call on us as a church to grow towards maturity in you. And I can see, Lord God, just from what Paul wrote here in Colossians, how as we fully see the revelation and have this revelation of who Christ is, that the, that the plausible arguments and that the empty and hollow, deceitful things and philosophies and human traditions that are out there trying to lure us away from Christ will not happen unless we stay focused on you and become fully assured of who you are and what you've done for us. And so I pray that you will help us as a church not to full pray, Lord God, to anything that is contrary to the truth. And the way, Lord God, that we will stand against that, I pray, is as we become more convinced of the truth and see the truth take full stature in our lives, the person of Christ. I pray for that, Father. I trust you for your grace upon us as we embark on this journey together as a family. Help us, Lord God, in this to see that it's Jesus plus nothing. We trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Amen.